Truth Out podcast about organizing, solidarity, and the work of making change. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. This week, we are talking about fascism, how right-wingers get radicalized, and what it means to actively oppose fascism in these times. The Biden administration has belatedly ramped up its rhetoric against the right, describing MAGA Republicans as semi-fascist and raising the alarm about attacks on the electoral system. Some people have applauded Biden for these rhetorical escalations, while many Republicans have predictably whined and wailed. But what does this development mean for activists who are already taking action against fascism? A lot of people are speculating about how Biden's enlivened language could affect the midterms. But whether or not the Biden administration's heightened rhetoric affects voter turnout, it will not protect us from the fascist mass movement the right has loosed upon the world. As anti-fascists, and I hope we all identify as anti-fascists, we have to understand the limitations and potential dangers of viewing establishment Democrats as a driving force against fascism. But given that Biden is finally talking about fascism, I think it's important that we pause to reflect on what that word means, how fascism is manifesting itself in our society, and what combating it demands of us. Because we are not going to gain that understanding from any framing that is being offered by the White House. So today we will be hearing from Tal Lavin, who is a journalist and author of the book Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. Tal Lavin understands the threat fascists posed in the United States better than most people because he embedded himself in their online worlds, creating fake names, social media accounts, and profiles in order to learn more about how our enemies operate and how we might expose and stop them. While writing Culture Warlords, Tal posed as a woman-hating incel and an anti-Semitic white supremacist waitress, among other assumed identities, in order to infiltrate online spaces where right-wing radicalization was occurring. Places where radicalized right-wingers were discussing their terrifying hopes, plans, and desires. In doing so, Tal learned a great deal about how our enemies think what animates their work, and how so many people have become fascists. One thing about online right-wing echo chambers is they're not as monolithic as you might think. There is a spectrum uh, of how people self-identify, There is, there's a lot of sort of sectarian stuff. You know, I identify as a white nationalist. I identify as a civic nationalist. There's generational gaps, all this stuff. But the one thing you can generalize about is is the way these spaces essentially function. Having observed them at close quarters for a long time, you know, uh, which I continue to do and, and have since the book has been published as well is they really function as these sort of, I call it perpetual motion radicalization machines. I mean, they're really specialized echo chambers where there's this continual, continual message uh, of stochastic violence. There's continual propaganda and it never stops and it's going 24 hours a day. And in essence, they, they serve as incubators for both political violence, you know, which is now abundantly clear, can exist in both sort of the, the quote-unquote mainstream right, as well as the far right where it's resided for a long time. So you really are, are faced with this, this issue where people are continually radicalizing each other and seeking recruits to draw in to that milieu. One thing people should understand about these 
automated radicalization machines, is that these environments were supercharged by the pandemic. First of all, radicalization thrives with isolation. And I think many, many people felt deeply isolated, felt and were deeply isolated during the pandemic. Another factor that contributes to radicalization uh, is a sense of threat or uncertainty. And that certainly abounded, uh, particularly in the early months of the, the pandemic, because we were told over and over again that the stakes were existential, but the responses didn't feel particularly existential. There was doubt sown very early on. There was not a consensus. So put all of that together and you have a very strong recipe for people to kind of... There's nothing inherently wrong with like seeking your own answers about world events. Uh, I don't want to make it seem like I'm like, no, like you have to accept official narratives uncritically because that's not how I feel. On the other hand, I think this was sort of a, a hyper-concentrated scenario where people were feeling very adrift. There were a lot of kind of bad faith slimeball actors who were perfectly poised to take advantage of it. There was a lot of anger and confusion and fear. And so all of those things put together makes for sort of a, a perfect stew for radicalization to ferment in. While I certainly do not feel any sympathy for people on the far right, I do think it's important to understand these dynamics. A 2021 poll by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Interfaith Youth Corps found that 15% of Americans believe in QAnon conspiracy theories. As PRRI founder Robbie Jones told the New York Times, thinking about QAnon, if it were a religion, it would be as big as all white evangelical Protestants or all white mainline Protestants. So it lines up there with a major religious group. The poll also found that 55% of Republicans mostly disagreed with QAnon's outlandish claims, but did not reject them entirely. That means only one in five Republicans completely rejected the idea that the Democratic Party is run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping elites who also eat babies. Biden has stated that he respects conservative Republicans, but does not respect MAGA Republicans, whom he views as extremists. I understand the strategy. Electoral politics is a numbers game, and Biden is attempting to go hard against his enemies while minimizing alienation. But if, for our own purposes, we are dealing in reality, the idea that MAGA Republicans are not representative of conservatism is something we cannot afford to buy into. The right wing has a vanguard. And while that vanguard may be stumbling, confused, and wholly divorced from reality, it also has the full backing of a major party. And many of that party's members are currently attempting to overthrow the electoral system. MAGA and QAnon myths and conspiracy theories are now part of the mainstream character of the Republican Party. Republican leaders who previously denounced the Capitol riots now minimize those events as mere expression. Attempting to isolate the problem of fascism to a select group of extremists also erases the issue of complicity, which we cannot afford to do right now. Fascist atrocities do not occur in a vacuum. Silence and cooperation also pave the way to atrocity, which means we cannot afford to bask in notions of innocence right now. Many people are no longer resisting fascistic policies and actions. We have to be cognizant of that and aware of the dangerous part our silence or inaction could play in whatever comes next. Fascism requires mass participation and mass cooperation, and I am seeing a lot of both. The official framing we are getting around fascism 
much like the official framing used for the climate crisis, does not come close to encapsulating the stunning severity of our situation. The extreme right-wing radicalization we have seen in recent years cannot be neatly extracted from our politics because it has fundamentally altered the nature of our political environment. So how did millions of people who might have previously been run-of-the-mill racists or even Obama supporters get pulled into a moment of mass right-wing radicalization? One of the things that I found, you know, and and I write about this in, in my book, Culture Warlords, at some length. But, you know, one of the things I found very consistently in my study of how people get radicalized is one of the biggest like desires that many, many people have. Um, one of the strongest desires out there for a lot of people is for like certainty. For someone to tell them what to do you know, how to think about a certain thing. And and all of us, of course, feel this to some extent. No one is immune from just like being like, well, I, you know, want to find a, an expert or a solid authority or just like, I, 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 you know, really, I feel uncertain and, and that's an uncomfortable feeling. And one of the things that radicalizers, right, excel at is, offering that certainty saying like I am certain I do know and only I will tell you the truth the the motif of sort of truth that's hidden from all others but revealed to the elect is both a religious motif and also I would say probably the single most you know important commonality between different kinds of conspiracy movements, different kinds of um, movements that espouse political violence. I think there are almost always psychological explanations, human explanations for why people behave the way they do and why people believe the things they believe which is not to say exculpatory explanations, just because something is sort of human and and natural doesn't mean that it's forgivable per se. But um, in many cases, the desire to belong, the desire to comprehend your place in the world, the desire to feel significant or part of something important, And, you know, certainly in the case of pandemic era radicalization, the desire to feel as if the world isn't actually incomprehensibly turning upside down, there are all sorts of perfectly rational explanations for the chaos around us. You can see how in an era of tremendous fear and uncertainty, and isolation, both that sense of belonging and that sense of certainty were incredibly powerful and and felt incredibly necessary to a, a very wide variety of people. In uncertain times, people search for answers. And the internet is full of bad answers and radical rabbit holes. It is also full of spaces that will offer people a sense of belonging on very sketchy terms. In such spaces, belonging is grounded in identity and notions of supremacy. All grievances and anxieties are affirmed, and people are assured that their worst impulses are correct. That kind of belonging can draw people in very quickly. It's important to understand these dynamics because we are talking about tens of millions of people being radicalized toward right-wing ends within a period of a few years. And as I have said before on this show, it's easy to mock and be dismissive of people who believe that Democratic leaders eat babies. 
But I also think people should stop and ask themselves, what might you be capable of if you believed that? If you were convinced that a pedophilic cabal that eats babies had illegally seized control of your government, how dangerous might you become? Because those automated radicalization machines Tal mentioned are running 24-7, generating that mindset in people. As a result of that constituency, as well as the influence of Fox News, I hear from a lot of people who have lost relatives to QAnon conspiracy beliefs. Like other cults, QAnon can isolate people from the ones they love. Many liberals and leftists desperately want to de-radicalize their loved ones, whose worldviews have been rewritten by Tucker Carlson and a host of random YouTube grifters. But for the most part, I hear leftists saying, fuck those people. Which is fine, up to a point. If someone has gone dark side, I don't think you are obligated to care about them or to want to save them. But if we do not assess how this is happening and take steps to prevent or interrupt these processes, our enemies will continue to amass an army. And these folks already have a lot of people and a lot of guns. Rather than focusing on de-radicalization, Tal is concerned with prevention. Because I study the the far right, people talk to me about de-radicalization a lot. And I, that's not particularly, that's sort of neither my, my area of expertise nor sort of the thing I'm most interested in. I think that as a moral issue, like, yes, people are not irredeemable, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, for me, the the understanding piece of things is more about prevention than it is about sort of rescue. I think when people talk about wanting to de-radicalize, you know, neo-Nazis and QAnoners, I think that's a laudable impulse. I don't deny that that can come from a really good place. But one of the the narratives I think about when it comes to de-radicalization is the story of um, Megan Phelps Roper, who grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, she was born into that family. And she was eventually de-radicalized because she ran like the church's Twitter account and this guy started DMing her and, you know, they wound up like talking and, and, and that eventually set her on a path towards leaving the Westboro Baptist church. And that's very laudable, but, but they wound up, you know, married. (laughs) Like that's the level of passionate, interpersonal commitment that it takes to de-radicalize someone, that level of intimacy for many people, you know, or, or Eli Saslow's book, uh, Rising Out of Hatred, which is a wonderful book, talks about the, the son of uh, Don Black, the founder of, of Stormfront, who was sort of set up as the heir to this white supremacist dynasty And eventually he left the movement after literally years of being invited to Shabbat meals by a Jewish student at at, at the college he attempted. Now, are we going to ask that of every marginalized person under threat? And like, first of all, it's it's a huge ask one that leaves, you know, the the would-be de-radicalizer at risk for radicalization in their own right, ironically enough. And the other piece of it, you know, the other reason I'm sort of skeptical of uh, uh, sort of de-radicalization as the end-all be-all is that people really do have to be ready for that process as well. 
you know, it's not something that you can sort of force on a person, uh, you know, especially because like leaving movements like this is sometimes physically dangerous. You know, certainly it involves in, you know, pretty much every case, the total loss of a, a community that has meant a lot to someone. And so it's like, it's like you have to pour in at least as, as much resources as you would in, in, into sort of getting someone out of a, an abusive relationship situation. You know, I think people imagine themselves sort of riding up on a white steed and saving someone from being a Nazi. I think that's a laudable desire, but it's not necessarily scalable. So when I talk about deciphering the human motivations for this sort of radicalization, my motivation is not necessarily any sort of, you know, laudably altruistic, like, desire to rescue people, but more uh, to prevent people from getting enmeshed in, in the first place. And, you know, also in the interest of knowing the enemy, frankly. You know, I think once you know what motivates someone to even the most monstrous act, you're closer to deciphering it and thus closer to preventing it. So that's why so much of my book focuses on the psychology of how these movements develop. And, you know, I think about it all the time. But again, you know, just because something is natural, a naturally human impulse, does not mean that it is a forgivable impulse. We can acknowledge that people are people and not monsters without forgiving them for acts that are deeply destructive. One of the things that has been the most heartening for me in the response to culture warlords is the parents who reached out to me and said that they've used the book, they've had their, their kids read the book, and, uh, you know, teenagers who've read the book, and said, you know, that it, it's helped them understand things going on with their classmates. I mean, one element that I really saw is like, and you see this in, in the ages of the, the white supremacist mass shooters, they're 18, 19, 20, you know, the radicalization is very youth focused and a lot of it takes place in online spaces that are targeted towards young people. And so one strength of my book, I think, is that it is like fairly approachably written, um, you know, with sort of me as your like guide character. I think that, you know, for parents, it can be useful to talk to kids about and then you know, I think for teens and, and, you know, young people, it can be also a tool for sort of understanding why did my friend like suddenly start radicalizing? Like what happened? Like he was just into Minecraft like a few months ago. I don't get it. Um, so this is a little bit of a map and I hope it can be used in that way. I also want to name that I really appreciate people who are doing de-radicalization work to invite people who have embraced right-wing conspiracy theories back to reality. I agree with Tal that marginalized people should not feel obligated to rescue the people who want us dead. But I also want us to consider that in this era of catastrophe, our own communities are not immune from the influence of cults or conspiracy theories. We saw the truth and consequences of that during the pandemic. Understanding these dynamics is going to be crucial, regardless of who we are trying to safeguard, influence, or bring back to reality. Because a lot of people are going to be frantically searching for answers in the months and years to come, and it's raining lies. We are awash in grifters and charlatans who are ready to build religions around their bullshit. So we need to figure out how to anchor ourselves in reality together. 
And some of us will have to think deeply about how we can invite people back to reality after they have detached themselves from it. In examining the scale of our current crisis, I want people to understand that for things to be as far gone as they are in this country, we could not possibly be dealing in the reality that Biden describes, where fascism is a marginal force. Biden is invoking rhetoric that invites everyone but the most extreme Republicans to view their politics as separate from the politics that are driving this nightmarish moment. This language does not reflect the reality of our political circumstances. Those of us who want to do the work of politics need to understand those circumstances. If we look at the history of fascist movements or mass atrocity in general, Genocidal outcomes are not the result of everyone simultaneously becoming a true believer. Some people participate in atrocity for social reasons. Some people become more prone to violence after enacting it in the context of shared purpose or bonding with their fellow assailants. Some people will not engage in any acts of atrocity, but may be biased against the targets of fascist violence and may express that bias in ways that lend fuel to the fascist fire. I had a recent conversation for my my substack with with Michael Hobbs, you know, of maintenance phase and you're wrong about fame, who's just a lovely person as well. And we talked about how much we both like loathe and despise this sort of tendency in the mainstream media, which he dubs reactionary centrism. And that's the sort of the columnist who, you know, I think Pamela Paul at the New York Times is a really great example uh, of someone like that who, who's writing about, like, both the left and the right want to erase women. And, like, you know, in one case, it's talking about, like, the destruction of Roe v. Wade. And the second case is some leftists are like, hey, you should use trans-inclusive language when you're discussing reproductive health. Like, as if these are morally equivalent and equally threatening. I find it absolutely putrid and, um, you know, very upsetting. A lot of different ways. Like, it's just so... It's so frighteningly evident of a media class that's mostly concerned with sort of their own personal convenience that makes, like false conflations as easily as you make toast. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's a very difficult and frustrating time to be someone with any kind of a critical focus on the media. And one of the reasons why Michael and I talked about it as manufacturing consent for the authoritarian drift because, you know, that's really what you wind up seeing is, is uh, people very eagerly conflating, oh, like, someone made me uncomfortable on Twitter with, like, women are dying of sepsis, <laughs> you know, or as my child has to wear a mask at school, and this is equivalent to an entire generation of the elderly dying you know, to this disease becoming the third highest cause of death for people over 80, just since 2020. Like it didn't exist before 2020. And now it is the third leading cause of death for that age group. I mean, it, yeah, it's just wild to me. Like there's been this sort of like soft peddling of eugenics, like quote unquote soft peddling of particularly transphobia under this false veneer of sort of concern for the children, which is the way so many moral panics manifest. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a, an awful lot of people working at the consent factory to maybe witting or unwitting accomplices to the authoritarian drift. But at the end of the day, when the consequences of your work are that you make it easier for authoritarians to abuse their 
chosen out group victims, like I'm not sure that your attention particularly matters. To succeed as a mass movement, fascism requires mass participation. And when someone forwards ideas or assumptions that bolster the fascist position or further fascist violence, they are participating. I know it's going to be really hard for some people to think about themselves or people they know as participating in fascism. The idea of having to guard against that may sound baffling and foreign because they may see their values as existing in opposition to fascism. But fascism is not fought with self-perception. To be anti-fascist, we must be vocal and active in our opposition, and we must never lend fuel or cover to the fascist advance. We must also understand that there is no ethical silence in the face of fascism. Silence is complicity and cooperation, which helps facilitate atrocity. That might likewise be hard to hear. But how many liberals and leftists have fallen silent on trans issues as the Republicans make the elimination of trans people from public life the new centerpiece of their politics? I am watching, horrified, as a lot of people who claim to share my values remain silent, allowing their biases, their beefs, or their sense of political expediency to override their decency or any solidarity they might have previously lent to the targets of fascist groups. Under Trump, liberals and leftists raised hell about laws attacking trans people. So where did this wave of passivity come from? To me it's less about sort of increased passivity or whatever as, as a, like a very successful propaganda campaign bearing fruit, you know, and specifically in the case of the, the moral panic around trans people that has resembled a lot of prior moral panics in that it's this fixation on, you know, the, the seduction of the innocent, uh, this idea that children are under sexual threat. You know, these, these ideas are like very specifically meant to appeal to and scare the crap out of, you know, a certain kind of bourgeois parent. It's very easy to sell like dread to people who already feel uneasy with something. So that if a parent who might feel like, oh my gosh, like Timmy said that they're non-binary and I don't know what that means and that makes me uncomfortable, right? Like that is the person who's going to perhaps feel a lot more receptive and a lot more justified in their unease when, you know, you have an article in the Atlantic or whatever saying these kids are being forced into being trans. They're, you know, being sliced and diced and brainwashed at the same time. And of course, it's it's all founded on, on lies, but it's very easy to sell people on like, I'm not a bigot. This social trend that like just coincidentally makes me feel like scared and old is actually very sinister. <laughs> And, you know, I think it does connect to that chapter in my book where I, I talk about George Lincoln Rockwell, the, the founder of the uh, American Nazi party, and then him sort of playing out this weird fantasy where Black socialists in tanks, like, take over the U.S., um, which sounds kind of awesome to me anyway. But he's like, ah, and, like, my neighbor, you know the nice liberal like immediately like picked up a gun and started like shooting at these black people because there's no such thing as a white liberal in a tight corner. And like, <laughs> I don't agree with George Lincoln Rockwell uh, about a lot. I do think there are people for whom 
you know, liberalism or a vague alignment with the progressive left is is more of a social veneer or, you know, mark of cachet or just a way to fit in than any like sort of deeply held set of values. Like, of course that exists. I don't think it's inevitable. And I do think in the specific case of the concerted attacks on trans rights, um, it's really the fruit of a, a very successful transcontinental propaganda war casting trans people as sort of a unique threat to children specifically. The fantasy sequence Tal described comes from the 11th chapter of George Lincoln Rockwell's book, White Power. And I have to admit, as I read Tal's description of that chapter in Culture Warlords, I felt a chill. Even though the scenario itself is a fascist fever dream, I have to agree with Tal that there are liberals whose opposition to racism, transphobia, and fascism is a matter of social identity. In a moment of crisis, we have seen liberal celebrities grab on to Pamela Paul's ideas about calls for gender-inclusive language being on par with forced birth, while liberals and leftists have remained largely silent about eliminationist attacks on trans people. We have also seen people in liberal areas vote to criminalize homelessness and embrace the abandonment of COVID mitigations, ramping up cycles of human disposal. To reject fascism, we must actively oppose it. In the upcoming anthology, No Passeran, Tal discusses what it means to be anti-fascist. He writes, The simplest explanation is also the truest. Anti-fascism exists in relation to fascism as anti-matter does to matter. It's opposite, and hopefully, it's equal. As fascism rises and spreads, so does the need for anti-fascism and the people inspired to fight back. There is no silent opposition to fascism. U.S. politics have led many people to believe that they are defined by their stated beliefs or by their self-assumed political identities. Liberals and leftists are unlikely to believe that they are bolstering or facilitating fascism, but our self-perceptions do not define our impact. In this spiraling political moment, most people have failed to actively challenge transphobia or the abandonment of COVID mitigations. We are still losing hundreds of people per day in the U.S. to COVID-19. Disabled and chronically ill people are being deemed expendable or as simply having no place in public life. Why? Because the wheels of capitalism need to keep turning. So life gets cheaper and people are cooperating en masse with far too little protest. If you were thinking, well, the Biden administration is setting that agenda, not the Republicans, you're right, which is another reason the Democrats are not an effective force against fascism. As Buenaventura Derudi once said, no government fights fascism to destroy it. When the bourgeoisie sees that power is slipping out of its hands, it brings up fascism to hold on to their privileges. The Biden administration cannot be the antimatter of fascism because neoliberal Democrats are committed to the maintenance of capitalism at any expense. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore stated at the Socialism Conference in Chicago over the weekend, the Democratic establishment is going to constantly yield to the authoritarians in order to maintain the most important thing they are the political wing of, and that is capitalism. I would also like to share some words from Robin D.G. Kelly from that same conversation, which was a live recording of the Dig podcast. Kelly said, I don't remember a generation of activists that were not fighting liberals. If you even look at the history of fascism in Europe, it's the liberal regimes that cede to fascism. The fascists did not overthrow the liberal regimes, they emerged out of them. And right after fascism was formally defeated, what did the regimes do? They continued fascism in the colonies. That's what they do. 
So we have to be careful saying if we can uphold the liberal regime and silence ourselves, we could actually beat back fascism. That's not how you beat back fascism. The idea that disabled lives are more important than the maintenance of capitalism will never come from the powerful because it is antithetical to their purpose. The idea that disabled people are not expendable is radical, especially in these times. To be the antimatter of fascism, we must be anti-capitalist, and we must champion the idea that disabled people are not expendable. We must defend trans children and trans lives with unequivocal solidarity, regardless of difference, bias, or political disagreement. The democratic establishment will yield to or align itself with the right as needed in order to maintain capitalism. And capitalism is not compatible with our freedom or survival. Fascism's antimatter is not liberalism. Rather, it is the stuff that collective survival is made of. Tal referred to anti-fascism as fascism's opposite, and hopefully it's equal. I think we need to think deeply about those words as we witness the continued rise of violence. I don't think most people are even considering what it would mean to counter the rise of what is currently happening. And I think it's dangerous to believe that casting a ballot by itself is sufficient opposition to people who are promising street violence and a civil war. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with your weekly reminder that Truthout is a nonprofit news organization that only exists because of listeners and readers like you. If you keep track of the independent news landscape, you know that we have lost some great publications in recent months and years. Journalists are facing layoffs across the industry. Here at Truthout, we are still hanging on, but I am not going to lie to you all. It is a struggle. The media landscape has been engineered to wipe out anything that isn't owned by the very people who are screwing us all over. Corporate algorithms are hurting us, but we are still here providing award-winning news and analysis that I believe helps to fuel and uplift our movements. Truthout has not laid anyone off during the pandemic. We are a union shop and we have the best family and sick leave policies in the industry. So if you think all of that is worth fighting for, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today. Or maybe even become a sustainer, because truth be told, those people are the reason we are still here. Thanks so much, and back to the show. The last time there was sort of this prominent a militia movement it was back in the 90s in in the wake of sort of Ruby Ridge and and Waco there was this this movement of you know people arming themselves and you know setting up these armed militia groups and and that militia movement has really risen again after a period of dormancy um it's always interesting to see like when social movements resurrect after periods of dormancy what does that look like why you know and what's changed but like as as we see sort of the you know the groups that were involved in January 6th and the groups that are you know facing legal culpability many of them are these militia groups that um you know are guys that you know men and women that that form up and practice military drill on the weekends and, you know, do all sorts of shenanigans it, it, in, you know, in the name of Christ and the Constitution. And, you know, certainly they were heavily involved and heavily armed in uh, the storming of the Capitol. You also have the accelerationist fantasists the the very far fringe of the right who really fantasize about the destruction of the you know 
tainted Jewish system who follow this playbook, you know, laid out by prior generations of, of white supremacists and whose goal is, you know, the, the goal of that kind of accelerationism, you know, and, and we see it on the right and the left. In fact, the term originated on the left, but um, essentially it's like, like enough political violence will topple the corrupt, you know, Jewish system. And that sort of fantasizing happens as well, of course. So, you know, the extreme right does have some ideological diversity in that and, you know, and generation gap stuff. Um, so like the, you know, the militia guys have fairly little overlap with the sort of doomer, like young neo-Nazis uh, on like 4chan. But ultimately, these are two separate groups on the right who are talking about arming themselves, who are talking about, you know, and what to do when the system sort of inevitably falls. And so it is interesting to see the confluence, important to recognize the distinctions in goals and desires, but also to sort of be mindful of the fact that we are living in a time of like an awful lot of ambient destructive energy towards the extant political system and, and towards marginalized people. And that's something that I'm sort of continually aware of. Certainly any teachers aware of it right now, any doctor, any nurse, anyone who has to engage in any fashion with conservative parents, um, and a lot of people who have like fairly benign professions and any other time are facing considerable threat. One thing I hope people can get past as quickly as possible is the idea that we can defeat fascism in the realm of debate or with fact-checking or by emphasizing their hypocrisy. I am not saying we should not highlight facts or contradictions. I think those things are important, but they are not fighting words. I frequently see people on social media who think they are spiking the ball by pointing out how contradictory fascist positions are. And the fact is, none of that matters to a fascist or to their target audience. What's being sold to these people and what's being embraced has nothing to do with facts, and it requires no consistency. In all cases, that which aligns with fascism is deemed right and true, and whoever and whatever does not is irrelevant, false, or wicked. There is this tendency on the left and center-left to focus consistently on hypocrisy and apparent contradiction in right-wing speech and behavior. And the sort of like, blue lives matter, but also defund the FBI when they raided Mar-a-Lago is like a pretty perfect example. But it's like, don't you guys back the blue? But, you know, all that sort of thing, I really don't find it a useful lens to look at the right through. I find the useful lens is like, you have to understand this movement as one that believes itself, believes that it's due is absolute power that is seeking after power at all times. And, and the way they understand the police and, and possibly have always understood the police is as a very powerful armed group in society whose function is to get rid of the people they think are undesirable. So, you know, when cops were cracking down on, you know, the George Floyd protests, then it was back to blue when they're raiding Mar-a-Lago with like defund the FBI. It, it, it's, it's very simple. It's like when you're going after the guys I dislike, you're great. And then when you're going after the guys I like, you know, fuck you. 
that's part of it. And then, you know, there's also a fairly long history. I mean, we're talking decades of certainly the fringe right, you know, the sort of more violent, openly violent right going against federal authorities. So just as we've recently seen, you know, bomb threats and shootings at FBI facilities, you know, like the sort of renaissance of the white supremacist movement in the 80s and 90s really was coming after Waco, after Ruby Ridge, these sort of standoffs with federal authorities. You have these conspiracy theories about the New World Order. And, you know, nowadays it's the Great Reset and, you know, the deep state. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly Donald Trump was quite hostile to the FBI um, because he's a big, giant crook in part. Um, not that I'm super pro-FBI. It's just sort of a funny situation. The, it's all, the contradiction is only apparent. Like, A, if you, if you think of the police as like a tool to subdue people who you dislike or want to destroy then you see any contradictory action or action you dislike as them stepping outside the remit. And B, if your goal is to sort of violently tear down the system, then like the armed agents of the state are sort of the first line of defense of that system. So there are many reasons for the right to object to cops. Police are perhaps the best example of why we cannot rely on the state as a primary force against fascism. Police are a fascistic force, even though they will, on occasion, find themselves at odds with fascists who are not police. On January 6th, some police were in league with the Capitol rioters. And in situations where state property and the lives of the ruling class are not at stake, Collusion between police and fascist organizers is routine. It is politically significant that Biden is using stronger language to describe the Republicans. But neoliberalism cannot be our salvation. It is the ideology that delivered us to fascism. And if the Democrats somehow thwart the current Republican advance, Democrats like Biden will continue to ramp up the violence of bordering policing, and human disposal in their own ways. In this era of catastrophe and collapse, neoliberalism may offer a longer, loopier, and less offensive path to authoritarianism, but that's where it's headed. As global disasters multiply, capitalism will become increasingly incompatible with the norms of liberal democracy. Biden's calls to fund the hiring of 100,000 police officers and to throw billions more at law enforcement agencies in a country where COVID treatments and testing are being defunded underline this reality. Biden recently stated that the answer is not to defund the police, it's fund the police, adding that we expect police to do everything to protect us, to be psychologists, to be sociologists. But rather than suggesting that we fund more psychologists or sociologists, Biden wants to throw more money at police. But police do not fill in for other professions. They dispose of people who are being denied other services. Police do not provide psychological care or sort out social problems. It's the communities police victimize that have been defunded. I once heard Angela Davis describe imprisoned people as being catapulted beyond the bounds of democracy. We are living through a moment when unhoused people are increasingly being catapulted beyond the bounds of any civic consideration. As the mere presence of unhoused people is increasingly criminalized, some have been driven into uninhabitable places such as the Mojave Desert and died as a result. Disabled people have likewise been catapulted beyond the bounds of consideration in most matters. Because what matters under capitalism is that the wheels keep turning, no matter how many people get ground under. We are all acceptable sacrifices if that's what ongoing profits demand. The casualties may be chosen differently under Republicans, 
But we have to remember where all of this is going. Because while Democratic savior narratives might work turnout for the midterms, we know they are not real. And while I plan to vote in November, as an organizer, I also know that my political world cannot revolve around the ballot box. To oppose fascism, we must be its antimatter. And that is not what the Democrats are offering. Regardless of what has to be done in November, we cannot afford any confusion about who our friends are or where this system is headed. I know that awareness can be daunting. As activists and organizers, many of us are absorbing a lot of traumatizing information on a regular basis. In the afterword of Culture Warlords, Tal talked about the toll that immersing himself in fascist environments took on his psyche. He wrote, Immersing myself in the worst of human nature while researching this book made me want to shrink inside the mollusk shell of my body, surrounded by air and hollow bone. I wanted to be sealed off. Every word felt painfully extracted from me. Rows of bad teeth grinned at me from the page. I hated myself, the world, and my words. Everything felt suffused with ugliness, and I wanted to sleep all day. In some cases, Tal encountered conversations about himself among fascists who were unaware of his presence, discussing how rapeable he was. In the book, Tal describes how absorbing all of that ugliness weighed on him. Yeah, I mean, culture warlords, I am proud of it. It is also a very much a freshman effort. It's my first book. And I sort of included more of myself than I might have if I were writing it now. But I did find, you know, the year plus that I spent, I mean, probably closer to 18 months that I spent, you know, the vast majority of every day, you know, consuming white supremacist material to be very traumatic. I mean, it took me a very long time to recover. And in some ways, like, because <laughs> it, it, it coincided with an abusive relationship, it coincided with the beginning of the pandemic. Like, it feels like a whole, I'm like still digging myself out of. And I'm still writing about, you know, the the, the far right, you know, currently most, most of my work has been about child abuse in the evangelical Christian community, um, which is like not easy material to wade through either. I think the biggest lesson I took away from sort of ferocious, single-minded, you know, immersion I did for Culture Warlords is like, oh boy, I can't do that again. Like that almost broke me. Um, you know, you wake up with this bad taste in your mouth and you go to bed mad and you wake up mad and like, it's almost like overlaid on the world around you. is like this knowledge that people want to kill you and people want to kill your family and like people want to kill people who are like your friends and I mean it's a very dark weight to carry around with you all the time you know it just took me so long to dig myself out of the, the sort of frozen hole that I was in after finishing the book that I realized if I had allowed myself more balance in the first place if I had allowed myself more time to write the book so that every day didn't have to be spent, you know, in the perpetual darkness, I would have had to spend so much time putting myself back together, like, you know, Humpty Dumpty over here. And um, I think for activists, I would just say, I mean, it's so hard to turn away. There's so much guilt in any time you turn away. Well, like, if you do not take the time to sort of deliberately find joy in your life, deliberately reconnect yourself with whatever it is that makes you feel alive and whole in the present, like, you will burn out. You will perhaps find yourself in places that are psychologically precarious and very difficult to recover from. And you will have to take the time to reconstruct yourself. So, you know temper that guilt with the knowledge that you may be forestalling like you know ceasing being able to be involved in activism at all 
One line I really appreciated toward the end of Culture Warlords was, love is not optional. It is what we must marshal to break the back of the beast. I have to admit, I teared up a bit upon reading those words because nothing could be truer. I know why I believe that love is not optional, but I was eager to hear Tal say more about it. When I say love is not optional, it is what we must use to break the, the back beast. I, I mean that you can't like simply operate from a, a space of opposition. I mean, opposition, anger, rage, like these are very useful emotions. Certainly much of my work is motivated by anger. I do not discount the power of anger ever, um, neither in my opponents nor in myself. However, I think there has to be an affirmative that you are also fighting for. There have to be ideals. There have to be relationships, be it family, be it chosen family, be it, you know, comrades, uh, fellow activists. You know, there have to be affirmatives in place for this struggle to be sustainable in the long term. Because anger is like super high octane fuel, right? Like, it's like we're race cars, you know, it burns really hot. It can drive you really fast, really far, but it will burn you out. And like, if you don't have something to sustain you over the long term, if you don't have things that tether you, that nourish you, things that you find yourself fighting for and not simply against, it's very difficult to sustain that battle over the long term which is like unfortunately this is an ethical struggle it's not one that's going to dissolve in the next five years or even 10 you know forces that have been awakened are not ones that can be tidally tucked away and it, it will be a struggle perhaps for the rest of our lives and so you can't wade into that with just sort of a whole lot of rage and, and a death wish you have to have things you are working towards, people you are working with, these anchors of, of yeah, love uh, and, and, and affirmation as well. Fascism thrives on hatred and self-obsession. The antimatter of fascism must embody love and empathy. A true force against fascism must reject human disposability and challenge the status quo. I know a lot of people cannot imagine themselves consenting to fascism on any level, but we have already been conditioned to leave people behind. Millions of people are experiencing torture, deprivation, and premature death due to the violence of the prison industrial complex. If we can be conditioned to ignore that, we can be conditioned to ignore much more. And it's already happening. So I want us to think long and hard about what it means to be anti-fascist and what this moment demands of us beyond a trip to the ballot box in November. Because while it's easy to zero in on big electoral moments, the shift we are experiencing is much larger than that. And we are going to need a larger vision to make a better world. I also hope people will check out Tal's substack, The Sword in the Sandwich, which is the only substack I am personally subscribed to. Because in addition to providing important insights about right-wingers, Tal also offers readers some welcome interruptions to that content. Every Friday, Tal writes about sandwiches. In keeping with his advice that we should not spend all of our time immersed in painful topics, Tal has written 34 essays about sandwiches, following Wikipedia's list of notable sandwiches in alphabetical order. As someone who writes about right-wingers and collapse, but longs to write about my favorite TV shows, I am delighted by Tal's approach, and I really recommend checking out Tal's substack which will be linked in the show notes of this episode on our website at truthout.org. 
I want to thank Tal Levin for joining me today to talk about fascism and right-wing radicalization. I highly recommend checking out his book, Culture Warlords, and sharing its lessons with the young people in your life. I also want to give a shout out to Melody Ng, who has been one of the primary fact checkers for this podcast. Melody is on another exciting journey now, and we are all so happy for her. But we are also going to miss her. Thank you for all of your work, Melody, and for making this show stronger. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.